Well, it is good to be here with you guys this morning. It's always great to come back to a place that has been so... Well, hey. Well, thank you for that. I wasn't fishing for that, but you know how much I like attention, so thank you for that. Anyways, it's just good to come back and to be at a place uh, that has invested so much into me. I was actually uh, interviewed by a couple uh, CBU students just a couple weeks ago, and they wanted to talk about church planning. And they had uh, the assignment of going around to different church plants and being able to talk to the church planning pastors. And I think we were their last one when they sat down with us, and they started to tell us about some of the other church planners that they had talked to, and it made it sound like um, the church planning process has been very difficult for some of them, and there's even like comments of like, they don't know if they're going to make it or not. And they were like, it was kind of refreshing to come and see God do a, a good work in, in a city and in a church plant to see kind of a, a successful model there. And I was able just to tell them, humanly speaking, the reason why we're able to have success is because we're sent from a great church that has a great model and great leaders who have invested in me. And the reason why good work's going on in there is because you guys have been faithful to invest and give and pray. And I just want to say thank you for that, especially to Pastor Mike, to Pastor Pete, uh, Lucas, PJ, Rod, Mark, and for his brief and impactful time, Pastor Wes. I think it's uh, God's kindness this morning that uh, even though Pastor Mike couldn't be here, somebody could stand in the pulpit and begin to talk to a congregation that's experiencing hurt that is family. That, that knows you, that cares for you, and, and loves you. And so I'm glad to be here this morning. You know, when you get news like you guys have gotten this morning or earlier this week, uh, you just think of pain and tragedy and conflict and stuff that comes up. I always equate it in my mind to, to fog. Fog, when it comes in, it just, it, it blocks things that are usually clear. Uh, tomorrow is the one-year anniversary of me losing my father. I just remember all of that, just the, the pain and the mist and the, the confusion. It just, things that are so clear just, just blocked. We live in Tustin, and we live across from the Tustin hangars. I don't know if you know about the Tustin hangars, but they are massive edifices. We literally live right across the street. You can see them, 17 stories high, 1,000 feet long. But the other morning when I took my sons to school, the fog was so thick, I couldn't even see them. Now, the grandeur of those buildings didn't change. The proximity of us to them didn't change. But that fog came in and made it look like the distance and everything was just really far. We needed something to help us see. We needed a light to shine through. And I think Jesus helps us with what we should do during those times. It's his story in John chapter 12. He says this, my, my soul is troubled. But what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came. Father, glorify your name. And I believe it's the pursuit of the glory of God in the midst of pain and sorrow and suffering that begins to be that fog light that pierces through all the confusion and pain and hurt and allows us to see the grandeur of who God is. That's what I want to talk to you guys about this morning. I want to lift up your thoughts to the glory of God. And I want to give you an example of a man who was humbly ambitious for the glory of God. Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. You'll notice in your notes, Nehemiah 5 there. We're going to get to Nehemiah 5. It is an important chapter to talk to us about what being ambitious for the glory of God is. But we can't understand Nehemiah 5 until we understand Nehemiah chapter 1 and who this man is and what his heart passion is. Nehemiah chapter 1. 
I was reading an article in the Harvard Business Review, which is something I say when I want to impress people with how smart I am. <laughs> I was reading an article in the Harvard Business Review, uh, and the title of the article just grabbed my attention. I had to read it. It says, if humility is so important, why are leaders so arrogant? If humility is so important, why are leaders so arrogant? So I began to read the article, and basically, I think he's making an argument similar to Jim Collins, if you've ever done any reading there, about how great leaders and great companies do great things because they have people who are humble leading them. And it seems to be that all the evidence is showing that humble leaders are the ones who are going to make a difference. Humble people are the ones who are going to make an impact. So the question remains, why are so many CEOs and leaders arrogant? As the author of this article began to talk about, he offered some of his suggestions and some of the interactions that he had with these people who would call themselves type A, very arrogant, aggressive leaders. They said this, we, we don't want to pursue humility because we think humility stifles ambition. And to be in my position, I have to be ambitious. I have to be aggressive. I have to be forward thinking. I can't pursue humility because it's going to stifle my ambition. But the author of the article made the counter argument that actually, if you use humility in the service of ambition, it creates a fantastic company that's going to do something great. Now, with all due respect to the author of that article in the Harvard Business Review, I think God has been saying that to his people ever since the Garden of Eden. Humility in the service of ambition is going to do something great for the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. We see that in a man named Nehemiah. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 11. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Now it happened in the month of Keslev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house, we've sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though you are outcast in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servant who delights to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now, if you know anything about the book of Nehemiah, you're actually in the middle of a story. 
The book of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew canon are one book together, and they are telling a story about the children of Israel who are coming back after the exile. It's a post-exilic look at the people of Israel. Israel pre-exilic was a great kingdom that was flourishing. Then during their many years of disobedience went into a time of exile in Babylon. Now we are talking about a group of people who are coming back after that exile to come into the land. And in the book of Ezra, it starts to detail under Ezra's leadership and Zerubbabel and all these different people, them coming back to start to rebuild Jerusalem. But opposition comes from the outside and begins to stop that work. And so sometime around Ezra chapter 4 to here, the work that had begun had stopped and looters and people came in and destroyed the work that was going on. And so we meet a man in the middle of the story named Nehemiah. Did you see where he was? He's in Susa. He's the cupbearer to the king. That means this guy is a man of prominence in the most powerful kingdom of the earth at this time. He literally, when you get to chapter 2, has the king's ear, can ask the king whatever he wants. He's a man of influence around affluence and can get a lot of things done. And he has visitors that come to him, and you know what he's not excited about? What he's doing there in Susa. He's not excited to brag about the different things that are going on in his life. He has one concern. What is going on in Jerusalem? Why does he care about that? Because God had so invested in the Old Testament his name to be associated with the people of Jerusalem, with the Israelites. He had so invested his name, his reputation, everything about him, that when you looked at that city, you concluded that if that city was flourishing, that God must be a great God. And during the times of David and Solomon, of course that's what the people thought. No one would stand against those people. Solomon had such a majestic kingdom. But now you know what it was? It was a laughing stock. Did you see that? Shame, trouble. People were laughing and mocking the God of the Israelites. There's a post-exilic psalm, Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Because of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Verse 2, why do the nations say, where is your God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Those people writing that psalm have a great concept of who God is. But you hear in that second line, why do the nations say, where is your God? Because right now, with what's going on in the the crumbling of the towers around them in this once flourishing kingdom is now in rubbles, they don't think that God's great. You want me to bow allegiance to this God? You got to be kidding me. So God's reputation's at stake. And that cuts Nehemiah to the core. Why is that? Because Nehemiah is a man who is humbly ambitious for the honor and glory of Yahweh's name. And I believe that that's not just Nehemiah's call, but your and my call to embrace the idea of humble ambition. Can we write that down, number one, on your outline? Let's embrace the pursuit of humble ambition. We must embrace the pursuit of humble ambition. I hope you know and understand that every single person is ambitious for something. You sitting there right now, even if you don't think you would consider yourself an ambitious person, you are ambitious for something. You know how I know that? Because every single person is a worshiper, and whoever worships is ambitious, and whoever is ambitious worships. I know that about your heart. There is something that causes you to get up in the morning. 
there is something that, that challenges you, that stirs you, that, that really gets you going. That's the thing that you are ambitious for. And God, I believe, has created humanity for that purpose. In fact, if you want to write this down, letter A, we should embrace the pursuit of humble ambition because it's our created calling. You realize that? It's your created calling as a person made in the image of God. A person made in the image of God. Let's just think about this theologically for a moment. Does everything God create give him glory? Absolutely. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Everything he creates is going to re radiate some sort of majestic glory about the God who created it. But if you notice back in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, mankind is lifted up to the status as being invested with the divine image and likeness so that we have the highest capacity out of all of God's creation to magnify glory to the God who is ultimately glorious. And it is our creative calling to be able to pursue humbly that ambitious call to give him glory in everything we do. Maybe I'll give you an example of, of what that looks like. This example has helped me as I think about that. Listen to a podcast called uh, Business Wars. It details the uh, different businesses that are fought for prominence in different industries. One of them was between Adidas and Nike. So they're talking about those shoe companies. Who was going to gain traction and control? So it's around the 1970s that each company realized, okay, if our company is going to have success, if our company is going to make a name for ourselves, if our company's glory or influence is going to spread, we got to get our image out there. What are we going to do? So they began to hire athletes at that time for endorsement deals. And so now you would see things that you'd never seen before. Olympic athletes on the world stage receiving a gold medal now wearing Adidas tracksuits. So that that image of Adidas is now being spread by a very prominent figure that everybody looks up to. Its glory is being spread by one of those athletes. Do you know what the title of that episode was? Of course you don't. You didn't listen to it. Let me tell you. You know what the title of that episode was? Walking Billboards. I can't think of a better description of what being made in the image of God is for us. You are a walking billboard. And God created you to have that billboard point to his majestic glory with everything you have. And you are to be ambitious to do everything you can to make that glory be spread through all creation. That is what image saturation was in the ancient Near East. A king would put his face on a coin. A king would put his image on a statue so everyone would see that and know that his glory and his reign spread there. That's what God did with humanity and that's what makes Genesis 3 so tragic. Because in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, instead of having their billboard be for God, made their billboard for the creation. Romans 1 tells us they started to worship the creatures rather than the creator. And now these walking billboards are going around and doing the opposite of what God had called them to do, stealing attention from him, giving glory and credit to something that is so low, so ignoble. How dare they give that glory that belongs to God and God alone? That's why sin is so heinous. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the 
glory of God. That's why good people can go to hell. That's why nice people can end up in eternal damnation. Because they do good things, and they do them not for the glory of the God who created the standard of good, and not invested them with the power to do that good, and not given them the opportunities and worked all things out so they could accomplish that good. They don't even want to give them credit for it. And that steals the glory that belongs to God. Good people can go to hell because of that, because all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But now you realize the greatness of salvation. So we need to embrace the pursuit of humble ambition because it's our created calling. But letter B, it's our redeemed ability. What an incredible thing salvation is now. You're a billboard trying to steal something from God and God when he saves you because Jesus Christ came and was that perfect billboard for the glory of God. He says, I always do what glorifies the Father. He did everything we should have done. He dies on the cross, rises again three days later, and now when we put our faith and trust in him, that resume of always glorifying God goes into our account. But you know what Colossians 3.10 says? We are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. That's what that sanctification process is. Our billboards being renewed and reoriented to reflect the glory of the God we were created to glorify. It's our redeemed ability. See how Nehemiah said that? Look at it in verses 9 and 10. What a great comment. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. But if you return, that Hebrew word for repent, right? If you return from being ambitious for yourself, if you return from glorifying yourself, and you start to live for my name's sake, then I will gather you and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. That's what you're to be ambitious for, the name of God. Psalm 138.2, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God is ambitious for the glory of his name. You guys realize how important names are, right? I don't know if you heard, we're having our fifth boy, okay? We're having our fifth boy coming up. Don't cheer. It's, no, it's old news now, okay? Five. <laughs> Happens every two years, we get it, okay? <laughs> we're just struggling. We're trying to come up with a name, like we're running out of names, okay? We had a certain list when we started, and now we're running really, really low. But you notice that, like, if you've ever had this, you know, husband and wife, whenever you're coming up with a name, you throw out a name, and the other person says, oh, no, I could never name my child that because I knew a blank, and they did this, this, and this, right? You notice how you can associate, you know, bad experiences and bad character with, with a name. You know, like, my wife threw out the name, like, Lucas, and I was like, absolutely not. There's no way. <laughs> just a conjuring up of bad, just bad thoughts. There's no way, sweetie. You associate those things, right? But notice that. That shows you that when you start to think of a name, it can conjure up character. It can conjure up a, a person. It can conjure up the embodiment of something. When we think about God and we say his name, what should conjure up? Glorious, merciful, truthful, sovereign, holy, loving. All of these things should be associated, not failure and shame and defeat, which is what was associated with it. God had chosen to make his name dwell there. And Nehemiah, he's so ambitious for it. He's so ambitious that he begins to pray for it. 
Do you want to know what you're ambitious for? Take a look at your prayer list. It will tell you very quickly what you are ambitious for. Jesus said something very interesting in John 14, 15. Something to the effect of this. If you ask anything in my name, this I will do. And people take that as a blanket promise, right? But that's not where it finishes. If you ask anything in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Is that what your prayer life reflects? See, there's this old adage. It came up with philosophy a long time ago. It's applied in different situations. I think it applies here. Our problem is not that we aim too low or aim too high and hit, but that aim too high and miss, but that we aim too low and hit. It's the old adage. Not that I aim too high and miss, but that we aim too low and hit. I can't think of anything that would describe American prayer life than that. We aim so low. We look at prayers like this and we focus on the end. Oh, look, Nehemiah said, God, give me success. And that's what we focus on. I want success, God. But why do you want the success? We know that Nehemiah was a man driven by the glory of God. Did you hear the beginning of the prayer? Oh, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to all those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and open and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I pray before you night and day. Great prayer will always clarify who God is first. And then it clarifies who we are. We're the servants. God, you've been gracious. You've redeemed us. You've allowed us to serve you. Make us ambitious for your namesake. It's your creative calling. It's your redeemed ability. Guys, we should be about this. And if you're not, if you're not that ambitious, I wonder if it's because you don't have a high view of God. That is one of the blessings of being a church plan from Compass Bible Church. We have our distinctives. And what do we have here? A high view of God. That's why when we talk about things like CBI and this institute coming over there, we don't just want to have education to pat ourselves on the back to say, look, we educated people. We want to invest the treasure of the knowledge of the great God that we serve in the hearts and minds of people so that when they go out, there is nothing that will stop them from doing the will of the Father because they know and love him. It's a bigger reason than just these small, tiny little things that people do. Are you ambitious for a great God? Maybe you don't have a high enough view of God. I read an article that said this. 80% of Americans cannot see the Milky Way. Think about that. 80% of Americans can't see the Milky Way. Do you know why? thing called sky glow. Okay? from light pollution. Light pollution happens when we have this artificial light coming everywhere, okay? You got artificial lights coming from stadiums, you know? The stadium that lights the, the San Francisco 49ers. I don't know why you wanna light that and see that. It's just not good football. <laughs> they choose to do it. Go Rams. But, but that, that light, that, that huge glowing light that's on top of the stadium creates light pollution. Lights from signs, lights from cars, lights from everywhere. Artificial light, and watch this. The artificial light blocks the glorious light that's above. Do you have an idolatrous view of God? Is it what J.B. Phillips says? Your God is too small. 
No, God is glorious. God is amazing. God is incredible. From him, to him, and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Do you have a high view of God? Are you humbly ambitious to do that, to chase it? I think God's calling you to do so. But if we're ambitious, and that's on our hearts, is there a chance that could go bad? I think it is. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter 5 right now. If you, have, if, if you find ambition and you realize, okay, I want to do something great for the name of God, is there a chance that ambition could go wrong? I think there's a possibility. As you're turning to Nehemiah 5, I just want to give you in your mind a mental time lapse from chapter 2 to chapter 4 so you know what's gone on. So we're not just diving into this so you understand. Chapter 2 in Nehemiah, he's gone from pleading and praying in that urgency to showing us that that entire time he had also been planning. The person ambitious is going to set these plans out and entrust them to God and say, God, if you're going to do this, Nehemiah prays real quick, talks to the king. The king essentially gives him the corporate checkbook and says, go do what you need to do. Take care of all of it. So then Nehemiah goes and he does like a survey of the land. And as he's doing that survey of the land, he notices some chatter from the outside. He's going to face opposition, which is going to be a theme throughout the book. Oppositions coming from people on the outside who are going to try to stop the work. But chapter 3 becomes a brilliant story of how strong unity is. And all these different people in this story now are working together on different sections of the wall. It's people who have no building experience. They got people who make perfume, they're coming in, they're building a section of the wall. They got musicians over here, and we know how they can't build anything, but they're still coming over here, and they're doing those things, and they're building things on the wall. And they're putting all these different things together, and the people are doing something, and they realize that if we're unified for a bigger purpose than ourselves, great things can happen. And they're making progress. So chapter four, external opposition heats up and they make threats. And Nehemiah again prays and trusts God and plans. And then he says, we're not going to be deterred from the work because he realizes that the unity of the people is so strong and powerful. Why do you think the call to the New Testament churches all the time maintain a spirit of unity in the bond of peace? Because it doesn't matter the external opposition if we serve a God who is all-powerful for unified, right? But what can happen? Internal discord. Take a look at Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah 5.1. Now there arose a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. Let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and on our vineyards. Now our flesh is as our brother's flesh and our children as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not within our power to help it, for other men have our field and our vineyards." I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words, and I took counsel with myself. And I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent for they could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. 
ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? What we have here is the only thing that could really threaten an organization that is unified around a purpose bigger than themselves, humbly ambitious for the glory of God, and that is internal strife. So what we need to do is be very on guard against selfish ambition. Let's write that down number two on our outline. We must guard against selfish ambition. Guard against selfish ambition. That phrase is not in the text, but the idea is definitely there. But that phrase, selfish ambition, if you know the New Testament, should ring in your mind over and over again. Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourself. Why? Because that's what Christ did. Write down James uh, 3.13 to chapter 4, verse 3. And there you have two sets of wisdom. You have the wisdom of the world, which is uh, full of selfish ambition that leads to uh, disorder and every vile practice. That's what selfish ambition will drive you to do. And these are written to churches with people in them who should come for the sole purpose of glorifying God. The church is the place where God gets the most glory, if you think about it. Ephesians 3.20, God gets glory in the church. Why? Because we all came in through the same gospel. No one came in because I was better than you. No one came in because I had more qualifications than you. We all came in by grace through faith because of an amazing Savior. So when we sing songs together, we have this unified, glorifying voice. Romans 15, that together with one voice you may glorify the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ. There was such a spirit of unity because we all came in through the great gospel that has saved us. How dare we be selfishly ambitious? You're in here because somebody died for you. Somebody who didn't deserve that death. Somebody who lived ambitiously for the glory of the Father always suffered on the cross for your selfish ambition. Why would we do that? We have to guard against it. But here's the thing, guys. Success always draws that out. You start to see victory and glory hungers come out of your heart. The ones that you don't want. Does this story remind you of anything? How about Acts chapter 6? Think about that. This is the early church. Just think about this. Early church. Just the gospel progressing, right? You're seeing the apostles standing up, being beaten for their faith, rejoicing that they could even suffer for Jesus. And what is the first thing that could hinder their mission? They're not sharing food with one another. Do you see how selfish ambition can stop things that God is trying to do if we're not careful? Look, the apostle said, we can't deal with this. We have to stay devoted to the preaching and the praying because that's what unifies the people around the glory of God. And by God's grace, they were able to stop that. And the great phrase that happens after that, Acts 6-7, is the word of the Lord continued to increase. That's what this church should hunger for. The word of the Lord continuing to increase. That's what our church should hunger for. The word of the Lord continuing to increase. And when that word goes out, it is that gospel proclamation that saves sinners and sanctifies saints so that God gets glory. You can't do that if you're selfishly ambitious, though. We have to guard against it. 
Notice what happened, okay? You have chapter five, a group of people, okay? They've sacrificed. They've come from the outskirts probably of the city where they had land and they had their own cattle and they had their own people and they left that to come work day and night. You see that chapter four. Literally, the, the people didn't go home to change their clothes. They're just working on the wall day and night. We understand that if we don't do this, our enemies could come, we'll be vulnerable. Everybody's working, we're sacrificing. So some of them are saying, well, hey, uh, I've got a large family. I need some money to feed this family, okay? I can commiserate with that, okay? I get it. I've got a large family. I'm gonna be one of those guys with one of those vans. You know what I'm talking about, right? I just saw one last night and I'm like, that's not so bad anymore. Like I look at that and I'm like, I could see that. People keep asking, when are you guys gonna stop having kids? And I keep telling them, when I have enough that they offer me a reality TV show. That's, <laughs> like, that's the line. Then I can start to pay for some of this if I can do that. That's a joke, and just so you know, my wife hates that joke, okay, she hates it every time <laughs> I tell that. But this family right here, we just have a lot of kids. We're trying to feed them. We're sacrificing here. Can we do that? Then the next one says, hey, I understand. Uh, there's a famine in the land too. And whether that famine was there because they weren't able to work their land or maybe it was less rain than normal, they just didn't have enough grain to go around. And then the last family says, well, guess what? We still have to honor the king and we have to pay taxes to him. So that means all of our money's going there. So we're having to sell our kids into slavery and you're thinking, oh man, they're selling them to other nations, but Jewish brothers working on the same project that they're working on are enslaving their brothers to debt and taking their kids to do their work for them. That's selfish. And that's so opposite of what God had called the people to do. Can you turn with me to Deuteronomy 15? I just want you to see this. I think the law gets a bad rap in the Old Testament because people wrongfully use it to try to manipulate or legalize it and try to know God. But you understand why the psalmist will say, I love your law, when you hear phrases like this in it. The intent of the law is never to start a relationship. The law is given after the relationship is begun by God who's redeemed. And that's been the case ever since the beginning. But listen to Deuteronomy 15:7. It's so, I love this phrase. This is exactly the heart that should have been in the people. The people who are there who have a, an ambition to be glory, to be glory uh, seeking for God. Deuteronomy 15, 7. Take a look at that. If one among you, notice that plural, okay? If one among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land that the Lord is giving you. That puts you in the context of grace right there. That sh you should be reviewing that, Israelites, and thinking, everything I have, 1 Corinthians 4, what do I have that I did not receive? And if I received it, why would I boast as if I didn't receive it? Here's an Old Testament version of that. The Lord's given you. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Watch this. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need. I love that. Open your hand wide to him. Help your brother. You guys are in this together. Why would you think, oh, I can make a little bit of extra money if I, if I just charge them interest for holding onto their field while they can't pay for it? Or I could, I could get some more work done if I take their kids from them and I have their kids do the work on my field. Now I'm thinking about myself. Now I'm thinking about my glory. Now I'm thinking about my needs and not the bigger picture, the glory of God and the good of others. We can't be selfishly ambitious. Go back to Nehemiah. So what do we do? Letter A, got to guard against selfish ambition. Letter A, monitor your heart. You have to monitor your heart. 
That's exactly what Nehemiah does in Nehemiah 6. You have to monitor your heart. Watch this. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And I took counsel with myself. That phrase right there, I took counsel with myself, literally, I took counsel in my heart. Always watch anger in your life. That'll be a telltale sign of what you're really ambitious for. Because if it's something lesser than God and it's taken from you, you're going to get angry very quickly. But if you're ambitious for God and someone's doing something against the glory of God, the righteous anger is going to come out. Who does that remind you of? Jesus? John 2? Flipping over tables? Because people were denying other people access to see the glory of the Father. It's not okay with him. There's a righteous indignation that comes with ambition, and Nehemiah has it here, but he's so wise to monitor his heart. Because at this point in time, he could go the opposite way. These guys are being selfishly ambitious and stealing things. He could make this all about him, and now it sounds like Moses in Numbers chapter 20. Remember when he gets angry? What keeps Moses out of the promised land? Because he's ambitious for himself. That's what God said. You weren't thinking about your name, Moses. You're striking the rock because you're fed up with these people. And he wasn't ambitious for the glory of God. That's how dangerous it can get. You have to check your heart, monitor it, guard it to make sure you're not going towards selfish ambition. So can you guys look at now your spiritual disciplines that way as a monitoring of your heart? an assessment of spiritual life directed towards the ambition of God. That's the way you have to look at spiritual disciplines. You never look at them as a way to manipulate God, to say, okay, God, I, you know, I did my quiet time seven days in a row, so I'm expecting something good now, right? You can't ever think that way. I have to use it as an, as an ideal way to, to monitor, to check my heart. Can you think of any verses for like common spiritual disciplines, prayer in the Bible? Psalm 139, what did he pray? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, O Savior, know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked, or you could add selfish ambition way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So now when you pray, you're not doing any sort of legalism, earning something with God. You're not doing any sort of manipulation. What you do is just monitoring. God, I want to make sure that I'm doing what you've redeemed me to do. Be ambitious for your glory. How about Bible reading? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce into the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So you read your Bible, you do uh, daily Bible reading, you call it DBR here, we do every day in the word up there. You just do it, check the box, and that's it. That's doing nothing for you. But God, monitor my heart as I read this. Do I lack affection for this when I read it? What am I, what am I satisfying myself with that's stopping that? God, do I, do I fear man more than I fear you? God, please help me to not do that. You get rid of that. You have to guard against this. Nehemiah does that. He takes that section. Let me just take counsel within my heart. And then what you can do after you do that to guard against selfish ambition, letter B, is monitor your relationships. Take a look at them. Monitor your relationships. That's where Nehemiah goes. He, he checks his heart, and then he says this. Then I brought charges against the nobles and officials, and I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. 
And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, notice the unity there, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to other nations. That was our goal. They've been enslaved. We went and bought them back. And now he's saying, you bought them back so that you could sell them into slavery and make money off of them. That doesn't, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't compute. So he says, verse 9, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God and prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? That's his heart's desire. God can't be mocked here. We know that from Galatians. God will not be mocked. And I'm not going to be party to somebody letting the other nations have an opportunity to openly mock us because we do something as foolish as not care for a brother who is sacrificing for the glory of God. We're going to enslave them no way. So he charges them that way. When you begin to look at your relationships, if you start to find there's a lot of combating going on, chances are you're selfishly ambitious. That's what makes, guys, James chapter 3, verse 13 to 4, 3, I had you write that down earlier. That is such a beautiful section of scripture. If you have a lot of conflict in your relationships, you should think, meditate, pray, memorize that section of scripture. Because in that first section, those two forms of wisdom are pushing you either towards selfish ambition or righteousness and peace for the glory of God. And then chapter four, one says this, why is there conflicts and quarrels among you? Oh, you're biting and devouring one another and all this because you want something more than you want God. You can't be selfishly ambitious. When you notice that you're out of sync with the community, it's because you're being ambitious for something different than what the community is being ambitious for. I tell you a story that reminded me of that. Just a beautiful story. Read in Reader's Digest. Uh, it took place in Florida. Family was there. And uh, two younger boys, early teens, uh, maybe even a little younger than that, just out there enjoying water with their family. Then something happened. The current came in, right? And that tide, that strong tide that can start to pull out and away, grab the two boys. So the two boys are taken out from the shore, from their family, and they realize they can't fight against this current. So they're screaming for help. We can't breathe. Help us, please, please, help us. So the family member sees this and obviously is concerned and is going to do whatever they can. You know what she did? Started screaming. And people on the beach noticed. And they left what they had on the beach and had brought there and they began to form a human chain from the, the firm ground where the water wasn't and began to link up together one by one, arm by arm, all the way out amidst the rip current of the water that was trying to take them away. And it held strong because they were unified. And they reached the boys and they were able to bring them back. And they were able to even bring back another family member who had something else bad happen. It's an amazing story as you watch it. The reason it worked is because they were unified for a bigger purpose. You know what I didn't read in the story? Anyone in that line thinking about, what did I leave on the beach, right? Oh, did I leave my car keys on the beach? What if somebody, they don't care about that. Did I leave my phone on the beach? What if somebody gets my phone? They don't care about that. They don't care about themselves because they're linked together in unity for something bigger than themselves. Saving the lives of these two people, that drives everything that they're doing in that line. And if they were ambitious for themselves at all, it would be noticeable right away because the link would break. So check your relationships. Is there any breakage in the link? You here are together as a church, linked arm in arm to pursue the glory and ambition of Jesus Christ 
And it can't break because you're ambitious for yourself. But to be humbly ambitious for the glory of God and seek that, we've got to guard against it, guys. But Nehemiah is helpful here. It doesn't just guard against selfish ambition. I think he gives us some key insight into how to maintain, sustain this long-term. It can't just be a flash in the pan. We can get excited about a project 2020. We can get excited about something. But can you sustain something like that? I think Nehemiah shows us that. Look at verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon the exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields and their vineyards and their olive orchards and their houses and the percentage of money and grain and wine and the oil that you have been extracting from them. And, they, and then they said, we will restore and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. So they took the rebuke. They said, okay, selfish ambition is not for us. We're going to give it all back. We promise, we swear. Take a look at verse 14 now. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, uh, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. For 12 years, this is Nehemiah's sustained mindset. Can you maintain humble ambitious, ambition? Absolutely. Why don't we write this down number three on our outline this way? Let's maintain our humble ambition. Don't let it just be something exciting, you know, New Year's resolution style. Oh, I'm excited for the first couple months, and then it fades. We have to maintain our humble ambition. Embrace that we're called to do it. Guard against something that would poison it, and maintain your humble ambition. Nehemiah was able to do so. And the only way to do so is to be extremely sacrificial. You have to be extremely sacrificial. You see that with Nehemiah. Moreover, listen to this, from the time I was appointed governor, Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance. Listen to this. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily rations 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall. And we acquired no land, and all the servants were gathered for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews, officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was this, an ox, six choice sheep, birds, um, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. You hear the sacrifice in that? But there is such a, a beauty to that. Do you, did you hear the words of the Savior in there? It said, the former governors, what they do? They lorded it over the people. What did Jesus say? The Gentiles, you know what they do? They lord it over the people. Won't be so among you. But whoever's going to be first among you, he's going to be last because he's going to be the servant. He's going to be the, the sacrifice. He's going to be the one who is going to give up his rights in order to serve other people. If I'm not selfishly ambitious, I'm going to be selfish, selfless in my ambition and, and ready and able to help a whole bunch of other people. And that's how I'm going to sustain this. Nehemiah, it's just so beautiful to watch him do that. Notice this phrase, I did not demand. He had every right to do it. Are you one passionate for your, your rights? I have rights. I can do this. It doesn't sound like somebody who's ambitious for God's glory. Uh, because if Jesus did that, you wouldn't be here. Jesus had every right to say, get away from me. I could, I could bring down hundreds of angels right now if I wanted to. But because he denied his rights and served, 
something amazing happen, your salvation. That's what's going on here. Do you have that desire to sacrifice for something bigger than you? And you got to do that with a community of people around you. How do you maintain this humble ambition? You can write down letter A, faithful friends. Faithful friends. You see this list, verse 10, moreover. You see verse 14, moreover. You see verse 17, moreover. He's given a list of the different things that he and other people are doing. His brothers are there with him. His servants are sacrificing with him. It's this group of people. It's this, you know, this herd mentality that we're all here together, believing the same thing, sacrificing for the same thing, watching something great happen because not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory is what we want to see. I and my brothers are seeing this. Can you turn to chapter 7, verse 2? Just a quick glimpse into who these friends were and who these brothers were. Chapter 7, verse 2. Now, when the wall had been built, and if you didn't know, it was built in 52 days. An amazing accomplishment by Nehemiah and his people. I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanai and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. It's not just nepotism here that's getting Nehemiah's brother the job. He knows his character. He's a faithful friend. He's pursuing the same thing. He's fearing the same God. He's living for the same purpose. And when you surround yourself with those type of people, everyone's going to try to be excelling and outdoing one another. That's what's going to push everybody ahead. Can I tell you a great story about that from this past Boston Marathon? It's incredible. Um, there was uh, the winner, Desiree Linden. Desiree Linden. Uh, she's the, the woman who won the, the Boston Marathon. She represented the United States there. Do you know that when she started the race... Uh, she said, I'm just not feeling super great. So she was running as a part of a team from the United States that really wanted to win that for the United States. So they had a, a pride for something bigger than themselves. She knew at the beginning of the race and there was going to be a lot of uh, bad sort of like uh, weather that day. It was very cold. The, the, the wind was, the gusts were huge. So it was just going to be a difficult race. She went to her teammate and said, hey, I, it's not going to go well for me today. Could I be the blocker for you? Could I block the wind for you? I'm going to do that so you don't have to take the brunt of that and you can save and conserve your energy and as long as I can do that, I'll do it and then you can go and win the race for us. So she's thinking sacrificially to do that. There's even a point in the race where she was running and she was blocking uh, the girl who they thought was going to win, I think who got second place or close to it, uh, blocked, said, I need to go use the restroom. Go ahead. You just go ahead of me. I'll catch up. She said, no. She stopped and waited for her while she was in the restroom then got back to the race. Do you know who ended up winning the race? Desiree Linden, the one who the entire time was thinking, I got to block for my teammate. I got to stop the win for my teammate. She wasn't thinking about herself the entire time, and she compelled herself to victory. Notice how that focuses you when you're able to just be thinking about other people. It just frees you up, and now you're accomplishing things you didn't even know you were doing. She ends up winning the race with her entire mindset the entire time. I'm going to help my teammate win this race. You got to have faithful friends around you who are willing to do that. I'm here to serve you. And then you're going to watch God take them and do something that you didn't even know was going to happen because we're thinking about other people, not selfishly ambitious. Not just faithful friends, but what, did Nehemiah, what else did Nehemiah say? He feared God. That's how you maintain your humble ambition. You fear God. I did not do this. I didn't lord it over the people. I didn't take what was my right because I feared God. This goes back to your high view of God. Do you fear him? And fear and following his commandments always go hand in hand but in this way, I hope, you, I hope you understand this. We don't have time to, to play out all the implications of this. But do you remember what I read in the prayer in chapter one? He prayed for those who 
delight to fear your name. So as we fear God, it's this reverence, this awe, but there's a sense of delight and joy. You know, Psalm 112 verse 1 says this, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Do you know it was said of the Messiah in Isaiah 11? The Messiah was going to come and he was going to delight to fear the Lord. Yes, there is strict obedience that the father is requiring. And it's his right and honor as a father, to quote Malachi, if I'm father, where's my honor? To ask that of us. But there should be a sense of joy and delight as we're following that. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And there's that love and joy and delight that are so intertwined when we fear God. It's going to be something that's going to sustain your ambition for him. And finally, future reward. Faithful friends fearing God and future reward. Thinking about that. Did that last prayer strike you? Verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. I mean, who prays that? Unless they know that the God that they're serving has promised to one day bless them for all of the sacrifice. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is the testimony of the scriptures. We shouldn't be, you know, scared to talk about it or think we're more spiritual than the Bible to not be motivated by a reward that's going to be given to us for a sacrifice here in this life. Nehemiah is saying, God, please remember everything I'm sacrificing here. I could take this. I don't want to do it, God. I want your name to be built up. Remember this for my good. I trust you, God, that the way I will enjoy my good in your presence will be for your glory. I'm going to wait for that day. I don't need it now. Not here and now, there and then, right, Pastor Mike says? That's what you're thinking about. Isn't that how Jesus talked to Peter? Remember, the rich ruler comes, and he walks away because he owns much and loves it. Peter comes and says, well, guess what, Jesus? We've left everything. What do we get? And did Jesus say, oh, Peter, you shouldn't be motivated by future reward. You know that. You should just do it because it's the sake of being good. He said, no. Everyone who leaves their family gains 100 families now and in the life to come. You know there's something coming better than this. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. Do not return uh, evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless... For to this you've been called, that you may obtain a blessing. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it is impossible to please him. For those who come to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder of those who seek him. You motivated by that future reward? You will sustain ambition for anything when you know that the God who is accomplishing it is going to reward it later on. This is how you maintain that humble ambition. Guys, it's a difficult thing to be ambitious. You guys have an amazing opportunity in Compass 2020 to be thinking about ambition. But you know what? You also have an amazing reflective time right now thinking about Pastor Wes. His last sermon to you should be one that you think about every single day. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. We are vapor, a mist that appears for a moment Spend every second of your life being ambitious for the God who deserves glory. Guard against that selfish ambition. Don't do that. And maintain it with the people around you. In social media out there, there's, it's really like the divide between you know, selfish ambition 
and what godly ambition is. There's actually a social media trend out there. It's called flaunt your wealth. You heard of this? It's ridiculous. It's like one of the dumbest things I've ever seen before. People take like their Lamborghinis and they pop open the side and called flaunt your wealth challenge. It's uh, you stage all of your wealthy possessions outside of your wealthy car and you stage yourself falling out of the car and as if you were falling out and all of your wealth spilled out. So that is how you're to flaunt your wealth by showing everyone, look how, how wealthy I am, even when things go bad and I, and I, and I trip on, on things like that. To me, nothing could uh, encapsulate selfish ambition more than that picture, how foolish it is. That's what you want to do. That's what you want to put on social media. You want to flaunt yourself and everything you have in a picture and realize that that's, that's foolishness. We should aim to be more like a company I heard called Upworthy. Upworthy is a site that goes to like different social media places and different uh, internet sites and tries to find these uplifting stories that really rally the good of humanity to get people's thoughts to be thinking good things rather than selfish things. Upworthy, what a great name. That's our call and our ambition, to think upworthy. And everything that we do should be promoting those things that are upworthy so that God would get the glory and attention in everything and that the name of Jesus Christ would go out there. Let me pray right now that we'd be able to do so this week, walking away from here, hopefully changed by God's word. Father, you have been so good to us, giving us your son, Jesus Christ, who was passionate for the glory of his father. Thank you that he did perfect what we could not. Thank you that he invests in us the righteousness that we need to get into your kingdom. Thank you, Father, that he gives us a great example now to live a life wholeheartedly devoted to pleasing the God who has created us, sustained us, and has brought us into his family. May we here, as a part of this entire Compass family, be one that is devoted to seeking your name increasing, your reputation growing, and your glory getting all the attention it deserves. From you, to you, and through you are all things. We commit this service and our lives to you, God. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.